0: I think we all probably have that, like one or two Christmases that are like the high mark of Christmas for us. Like the ones that, even if we try not to, we kind of judge all other Christmases by them. For me, that's Christmas 2015. Jack, our oldest, was three. And the only thing that he wanted for Christmas was a Buzz Lightyear. (laughs) And I don't know if it's just because he's my oldest. And so, like, it was my first time, like, really having a three-year-old up close. But I had never seen a kid that young stay that determined for so long. Like, four months, the only thing he talked about was getting a Buzz Lightyear for Christmas. When he opened Buzz Lightyear, it was like something out of a movie, right? Like he opens it up, his whole face lights up, it's Buzz. We don't have to talk about how Buzz's arm broke off five minutes later. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, one of us had the presence of mind to say, it's okay. His arm broke off in the movie, too, because that was the only thing that saved Christmas.. His reaction was everything you hope for from your kids on Christmas morning. And so every year there's a little bit of like, man, I really want that reaction again when they open their gifts, right? but it also kind of gets harder every year because he's not three anymore, he's 11. And an 11-year-old just can't quite match the enthusiasm of a three-year-old. So I love that Christmas, but if I spend all of my time and energy, put all of my hopes for Christmas in recreating that exact moment again, Christmas could get Disappointing and discouraging. Christmas is a time that comes prepackaged with a lot of emotions for us. A lot of times, those are good emotions, and sometimes they're hard ones. For some of us, Christmas comes pre-packaged with a lot of disappointment and discouragement. Maybe it's because Christmas doesn't live up anymore to the memories of Christmases in the past. Maybe things aren't just shaping up the way that you wanted them to this year. Maybe Christmas doesn't even really have anything to do with it. You're just discouraged. Life isn't at the point you thought it would be You thought you'd have like everything built up just so, but instead you're looking around and it's just like ruins and rubble all around you. If that's you, I trust you're in the right place this morning because this morning we're looking at a time when God's people were broken and discouraged. They were disappointed. Nothing had come out the way it was supposed to. And it wasn't just a little disappointing. It wasn't a little discouraging. Their whole lives were in shambles. And they were paralyzed by fear and by discouragement. But before we go there, I want to go back. And I'm going to give a quick disclaimer here. I promise this sermon won't run as long as it might seem like it could run at times. Before we get started, I want to go back about 900 years. (laughs) Israel had spent 400 years in Egypt. They had entered Egypt as a family of refugees, and now God is bringing them out as a nation that he had freed from slavery. And God had promised them, I have made you a holy people. I've set you apart as my people. And so the book of Exodus has two parts. The first part is God saving his people out of slavery and death. And the second part is him giving them the things that they would need to be a people set apart to live with him. And those two things were the law and the tabernacle. The law was given to them not as this harsh list of rules that you have to obey or else. It was God saying, this is what it looks like for a people to live with me. And he also gave them the tabernacle, the place where he would dwell in their midst. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had lived in the garden and God had come and walked with them. But their sin had made that impossible god is holy and he's just and so he couldn't just turn a blind eye to it and walk with them in their sin but god's beginning to undo that in exodus by giving them the temple he's giving them a way where he can live with them again but there's still degrees of separation there only jewish people were able to enter the tabernacle Only priests were able to enter the holy place. And only the high priest was able to enter the holy of holies where God's presence actually dwelt. And he was only able to do that once a year. It wasn't like the garden. But he was beginning to undo sin and provide them a way for him to dwell in their camp with them. And so for 500 years, God lived in a tent in Israel's midst. And then finally, Solomon builds the first temple so that God's no longer living in a tent. And he finally has a place that you would look at and see that is the sort of place that God would live in. It was huge. It was magnificent. It was intricate. There was Everything was covered in gold. It was big and it was shiny, and it was the sort of thing you'd look at and say, yeah, that's where God would live. And God came to Solomon, and he told him in First Kings 6, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules, and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. He's telling Solomon, it's not about the edifice, it's not about the gold, it's not about the sacrifices, it's about your hearts. It's about dwelling with me. And again, last week, Andy walked us through the decline of David's house after that point. The next 400 years were rocky for Israel. They had 20 kings 16 of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Only four did what was right. And really only Josiah did that consistently throughout his life. The kings of Israel turned away from the Lord. And as the kings went, so went the hearts of the people. Their hearts were far from them. And he warned them over and over again. he entreated them, come back to me. Dwell with me. And yet they consistently turned away from him and followed after other gods. And I finally got to the point, as Andy talked about last week, where God tells Jeconiah, that's it, I'm done. You're done. If you were my signet ring, the symbol of my authority, I would cast you off of my hand. You will be childless, and no child of yours will sit on David's throne. Go ahead and put the first slide up. And so God sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, against Judah. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem. He besieges it and sacks it for the first time. He takes Jeconiah into captivity, along with about 10,000 other of Judah's best and brightest, including the prophet Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar replaced Jeconiah with Jeconiah's uncle Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, it would turn out, would prove to be the last king of Judah. Because in 601, war broke out between Egypt and Babylon, and Zedekiah decided... This is the perfect opportunity for us to get out from under Babylon. We're gonna side with Egypt and we're gonna go to war. And God had warned him not to do this. He sent Jeremiah and said, do not side with these foreign nations. Do not side with their false gods, just trust me. But Zedekiah ignored God, ignored Jeremiah, and Babylon won; they defeated Egypt so Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Jerusalem for the second time in 597 besieges the city again sacks it again takes even more captives back to Babylon this time including the the prophet Ezekiel and God continued to warn them Babylon is my servant I am the one who have sent them against you to discipline you to turn Your hearts back to me to realize what the fruits of your sin are rebelling against babylon is rebelling against me right now and yet they continued to rebel so finally nebuchadnezzar has had enough he comes back to jerusalem for the third and final time in 586 And he sacks Jerusalem. He captures Zedekiah. He forces Zedekiah to watch as all of his sons are brutally slain. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he saw was the murder of his sons. He has the temple stripped of everything that might have been left after the first two sackings. Burns it to the ground. And has the city walls torn down brick by brick. Jerusalem was in utter ruin. The temple was gone. And that meant God was gone too. The temple wasn't just a place to have services. It wasn't just a place to make sacrifices. It was where God dwelt with his people. It was how he had begun to undo the fall. If it's gone, how is God going to dwell with his people? They're not even living in the promised land anymore. God took them out. He brought them into the promised land. He lived with them. That was supposed to be the undoing of the fall. And yet, like Adam and Eve, they find themselves exiled from the land. And that's how things remained for another 50 years after the temple was destroyed. Decades of living in a foreign land without God, without hope. That's how things seemed like they would remain forever until God was ready to move in his people And then things changed literally overnight. Go ahead and go to the next slide. In 539 BC, Babylon fell. And it's still kind of a mystery to historians exactly how it fell and what happened. Because it was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And then all of a sudden, this small group Of people this alliance that nobody had really ever heard of to this point called the Medes and the Persians rise up to the east invade Babylon take the city that was supposed to be impenetrable overnight and set up a new Empire scripture gives us a little more detail about what happened in Daniel because this was the night that King Belshazzar was partying it up And he had his servants go and bring all of the cups and the serving ware that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and used those to serve his guests. And then that hand appeared and wrote on the wall in a language that he he couldn't understand, that none of his wise men and magicians could understand. And so they called for Daniel and Daniel comes and he interprets it and he says, Belshazzar, your time is done. Tonight, you will die and your kingdom given to another. And that was the night that the Medes and the Persians somehow broke through the city while Belshazzar and his people are partying up and go through and decimate them and begin the Persian Empire. And all of a sudden, there's a new king, Cyrus. And within the first year of his reign, he issues a decree Allowing the Jewish people to return and to rebuild their temple. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is right after 2 Chronicles. If you've hit Job or Psalms, you've gone too far. Ezra chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot packed into just that intro. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Judah's time isn't marked by their own king. It's marked by a foreign king. They mark their time by the reign of Cyrus. David's throne sits empty. More than that, David's throne has been broken and burned. So there's nothing left to it. God had promised David, a king is coming in your line who will will, will sit on your throne forever. Forever. But the throne is destroyed, David's line has been cast off and they're ruled by a foreigner. Let's keep reading. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who Who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem that is an astounding decree the pagan Emperor of Persia says the God of heaven the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who gave me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me with building his house in Jerusalem. And not only that, all of you around the people of Israel, give them gold and silver to help them on their way. Give them free will offerings to build their temple for them. beginning again in verse five, then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that nebuchadnezzar had carried away from jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods cyrus king of persia brought these out in the charge of mithridath the treasurer who counted them out to Shesh-Bajar, the prince of judah and what, this was the number of them 30 basins of gold a thousand basins of silver 29 censers 30 bowls of gold 410 bowls of silver and a thousand other vessels all these vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is reminiscent of God bringing his people out of Egypt. When he brought them out, the Egyptians showered them with their gold and silver and said, just take this and go. Go worship your God. Take what we have and Go. And God is doing that again. The people of Babylon, who once brought them into captivity, who sacked their city and their temple and stole all of their gold and silver, is not just returning what was taken, but is giving even more besides it. God is bringing his people back to the promised land. And that's not all that's astounding. Because remember how rebellious Jerusalem had been? How they kept going against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? Who are the leaders that are sent to begin this work of rebuilding the city and the temple? Joshua goes as the high priest. Joshua was the son of the high priest when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. And even more than that, who's the governor that he puts in place? He's going to put in place Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was of the line of David. He had a legitimate right to the throne in Jerusalem. And Cyrus is going to send him as governor? That's asking for another rebellion, right? Right? It makes no sense. Who would do that? Only someone whose spirit had been stirred by God would have chosen Zerubbabel to be governor of Judah. As you might have guessed from our first scripture reading in Matthew, Zerubbabel is going to be the one that we're going to focus on this morning. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands or hands for anything, but just how many of you off the top of your head when you heard Zerubbabel remembered he was the one who was in charge of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple? Probably not many. Quick confession about myself. I hate puns. I hate them. And I say that to let you know This is how much I love you all that I am willing to try to make this pun come out of my mouth. Because you will never forget who Zerubbabel is after this morning. Zerubbabel rebuilt the Rubbleball. <laughs> You're not going to forget that, are you? Zerubbabel is the one that Cyrus and that God... Placed over Judah and over Jerusalem to rebuild the rubble Bowl. And so in chapter 2, a group of 42,360 exiles leave Babylon and return to their home in Jerusalem. When they get there, they come to the city and they offer up a freewill offering of the things that had been given to them, the things that they brought with them from Babylon in order to cover the costs Of starting to rebuild the temple and when we come to chapter three the people are afraid they're afraid because in the past 70 years as Babylon has been taking them out of the land other people have been coming in and filling it and they're not so happy with the idea of Judah coming back and having to share the land with them And the people of God know this and they're afraid. But unlike before, they're not looking to outside help to answer their fears. They're going to God with them now. The first thing that they do is build an altar so that they can give sacrifices to the Lord. And then after that, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And I'm convinced this had to be one of the most meaningful celebrations of the Feast of Booths in all of Israel's history. Because the Feast of Booths was a time, yes, to celebrate the harvest and God's provision. And I mean, this year, Israel reaped a harvest of silver and gold from Babylon. But it was more than just the harvest. It was a celebration of God's salvation, God's provision, and God dwelling with his people. They were supposed to, for the duration of the celebration, not live inside their houses. They would build these intentionally flimsy structures outside, and they would live in them as a reminder that God saved us from Egypt and brought us through the wilderness before entering the promised land. Our ancestors lived in tents. And even more than that, God lived in a tent with them. God came down to dwell with his people in a flimsy structure like this. And so this year they're celebrating the Feast of Booths right after they return. And they probably didn't have to build flimsy structures to live in instead of their houses because that's all they had. They're back in the promised land, but everything is still in ruins and rubble around them but they've been here before and God dwelt with them in their midst. And so yeah, they're afraid of the people around them. Yeah, the city is in ruins, but God is here with us. And so I'm, that's why I'm convinced that had to be the most meaningful celebration of the Feast of Booths ever because it was front and center that they might be in the wilderness right now But God has promised something greater. After the celebrations were over, pick up in chapter 3, verse 10. After the celebration, they begin to lay out the foundation of the temple. Verses 10 and 11, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That song that they're singing, by the way, is the song that David sung when the the Ark of the Covenant was finally returned to Jerusalem after it had been taken by the Philistines. God is moving again. He's brought us back. He's going to rebuild his temple. We're going to live with him again. But it wasn't all joy and praises that day. Keep reading in verses 12 and 13. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful, sorry, the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Why were the old men weeping? Because this temple was so much smaller than the first one.
1: Solomon's temple was
0: huge, it was magnificent, and this one's just not going to live up And what does that mean? I mean, if God is moving, if God has brought us back, if he's rebuilding his house so he can dwell with us, why is it going to be so much lesser than before? Is this really the best we can do? Is it really the best God can do? Yeah, we're back. Yeah, we're going to rebuild the temple, but... Are our best days behind us? Is it just going to be downhill from here? They expected so much more from God. Can you relate to that this morning? And so chapter 3 ends on a low note. And we come to chapter 5, and it only continues to spiral downwards from there. Remember, the people around them are not happy that they're back. They don't want to share the land with God's people. And so they begin a campaign of harassment to try to stop them. They discourage them. They give out bribes to counselors to give them bad advice. They harass and intimidate them... And just leave the people of God so discouraged that they can't really bring themselves to build the temple anymore. I mean, they're right, like, look at how small this is. Why should we even bother at this point? Let's just build our houses and that'll be enough. And that went on for six years discouraged why bother eventually after six years their enemies around them decided that wasn't even enough they wanted to make sure for certain that this temple was never going to be built and so they sent a letter to the king of Persia at this point Cyrus has died and his son Artaxerxes is reigning so they send artaxerxes a letter saying hey these jewish people check your records they are a rebellious people and they're over here rebuilding their temple they're rebuilding the walls that nebuchadnezzar had to tear down so artaxerxes gets the letter and he has the babylonian records searched and sure enough jerusalem rebelled over and over and over again Nebuchadnezzar had to tear down the walls, tear down the temple, and now they're going to rebuild them? No. And so Artaxerxes issues a decree saying all work has to stop. And it stops. For ten more years, nothing is done. God's people have been back in the land for 16 years now. But God's dwelling with them is still non existent. It's still just laying in rubble. It's now 520 BC, it's been 16 years. Nothing is what it was supposed to be. But in that year, 520, everything changes because God begins to speak to his people. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. God sends these two men to speak to them, prophets prophets with the word of the Lord for his people. And when God speaks, he promises that it does not go out without fulfilling what it is sent to accomplish. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4 for a minute. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you're having trouble finding it, just go to Matthew and flip back a couple pages. And God sent... Zechariah, a series of visions, meant to encourage the people, meant to encourage the high priest Joshua and Judah, or sorry, Zerubbabel, the governor, to encourage them to stir their hearts up again, to seek his face and rebuild his temple. Zechariah chapter 4, we'll look at verses 6 through 10. Then he, this is the angel that Zechariah has a vision of. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's been 16 years since they first tried to rebuild the temple. I have to imagine Zechariah probably felt a little discouraged when he first heard that God had sent prophets to tell them to rebuild. I don't know this. It's not in the text, but I, I have to imagine his heart sinking and just thinking, I, I tried already. I did everything that I could, and look at what I have to show for it. I failed. And what does God say to Zerubbabel? He says, You did try. And you did fail. But you think that the opposition is too great for you? I will flatten them into a plane before you. You're not mighty enough, you're not strong enough to oppose them and do the work. It's not by might or by strength. My spirit will do this. Yes, Zerubbabel, rebuild the temple, but it is by my spirit that I will do this. And God stirred up the hearts of Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and the people. They repented of their ambivalence towards God and and repented of their preoccupation with their own lives and their own houses. They begin to rebuild the temple again, not out of some sense of duty, like I have to do these things in order to build a place that God is able to dwell in. But instead they're doing it because they trust that he meant it when he said, You will soon see this house finished. He has said it's going to happen, so we're going to live under the assumption that it's going to happen. Their enemies, of course, are still not happy with that. So you can flip back to Ezra. They begin rebuilding the temple. Trusting that God has given them his spirit, and he is going to do the work that they cannot. And their enemies see this. They see work on the foundation starting again. And so they come to the people in Jerusalem. Sorry, this is still in chapter 5. They come to the people in Jerusalem, and they say, We want to know who you are, and by what authority you're rebuilding the work that was ordered to be stopped. And the people respond in chapter 5, verse 10. We ask them their names. This is in the letter they write. We ask for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried it away, the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that his house, this house of God should be rebuilt. That is not the response of a fearful people. Who are you? We are the servants of the God of heaven. By what authority are you doing this thing that Artaxerxes said to stop doing? We are the servants of the God of heaven. They're no longer afraid of the people, God has stirred up their spirit. So the enemies obviously are not happy with that. They send this letter to the king by this time artaxerxes is no longer king it's darius so he gets this letter and he has the record searched again and this time he finds cyrus's decree that the temple should be rebuilt that the people around the jewish people should pay for it and so darius issues a new decree And this was not exactly what the enemies of God's people had hoped for. His decree says, no, they're going to finish their temple. You better not do anything to stop it. And you're going to pay for it. And so the work continued, not only uninterrupted, but financed by the enemy of God's people. Jump ahead to chapter 6. They finally finished the temple, starting in verse 13. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Baznai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. Notice that God's people prospered through the preaching of his word. They struggled and they failed and they were discouraged until God sent Haggai and Zechariah to say thus is the Lord. And he stirred up their hearts through his word. And you also notice that even Artaxerxes who ordered them to stop is included in the people responsible for it being finished even Artaxerxes who seems to be in opposition to them is counted among God's servants in his plan of restoring his people to himself and then the last scene that we're left with in the story of the temple being rebuilt is that they celebrate the Passover Look at verses 19 to 22 of chapter 6. On the four, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together; all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They celebrate Passover. They celebrate that our God is a God who saves, that he brought them out of the land of Egypt, brought them out of slavery and death. He saved them from death by the blood of the lamb. He brought them to the promised land through the wilderness, and he dwelt with them. They celebrated the fact that God was making a way to dwell with his people again. God's people were once again living for him and with him. They were in the promised land. They had the temple. God was in their midst. But even that wasn't good enough to satisfy God's desire to live with them. This was a kind Of return to the Garden of Eden before the fall, but it's not enough for him. And so 500 years after this, God sends a new and better Zerubbabel to build a better temple. You don't have to turn there, just listen to part of the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt among us. Literally, that's the verb version of the noun tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple so that the people would have a place where they could dwell in the midst of God. But as great as that was, it wasn't enough. there were still divisions. Most of us here couldn't enter that temple as Gentiles. Most of the people who were Jewish couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies where God actually dwelt. But Jesus became flesh so that he could be a living, breathing, walking temple among us. He took on human nature fully god became fully man to dwell among us and if it seems like that's a bit of a stretch calling jesus a living breathing walking temple remember he said on multiple occasions to the scribes and the pharisees destroy this temple talking about his own body and i will raise it up again in three days And you might be thinking, that's great for the disciples. They got to walk with Christ. They got got to reap the benefits of having a living, breathing, walking temple amongst them. But I don't have that. Jesus isn't walking around like he did then. But what was one of the things that Jesus told the disciples on his last night before he was crucified? He said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God still dwells with us. We actually, really, literally have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God living in each of us. He has made his tabernacle inside of us. Jesus may have ascended into heaven, but we are not separate from God any longer. And as if that wasn't enough, he still isn't done. He still isn't satisfied to leave it at that. Because not only did he become a living, walking, breathing temple, but he is building us up into temples as well. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus isn't just a living, breathing temple. He is making us living stones in that temple by the Spirit. He is building us up, fashioning us, forming us into his image to make us a more intricate, more beautiful house for him to live in. And yet we still have a greater fullness of that to come. The spirit lives within us now, but he is still working to prepare us for what is coming. He is building us up as living stones in a temple where the fullness of God will dwell for eternity. When the Israelites were discouraged and disappointed for the second time because they just they couldn't do the work. They tried. It's been 16 years. Nothing has been accomplished. What was one of the things that God told Zerubbabel? Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The greater Zerubbabel, Christ, has the plumb line in hand. He is building you up into his temple. Cutting away sin, refining the gold that he has placed in you. working forward to the day when you will have the fullness of the presence of God with you. I told you in the beginning, if you were disappointed or discouraged, this was the place to be this morning. But please hear me when I say this, that is not a promise that your circumstances are going to get better in the way you want them to. It's not a promise that the chronic pain you're dealing with will go away, or that relationship will be restored, or the pain will go away completely. It's not a promise that you'll get a better job, or have a higher salary, or your kids will (laughs) stop disobeying and talking back to you. It's a promise that God is not done with you. That he will never be done with you that he will continue to shape and fashion you and that one day you will experience the fullness of his glory. It is a promise that God himself the spirit of Christ dwells within you now. And you will dwell with him forever. God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Our sin destroyed that. It killed us. It left us alienated from him, unable to stand in his presence. But everything that he does in salvation is to restore us back to that state. Where we can once again stand in his presence and walk with him. unlike in the garden, he won't simply visit us in our home in the cool of the day. So Rubble and his people, all the people of the old covenant, longed for the coming of the Messiah. But they didn't have a clear picture of what that meant. They just knew that was what they needed. We have a much more clear picture of what is waiting for us when the Messiah returns. So how much more should we be filled with eager anticipation for that day? Jesus is our better Zerubbabel. He doesn't just build a temple of stone. Listen to Revelation. This is from chapters 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then picking up again in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then the angel showed me the river of the the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street and of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." his God and the lamb will be the temple no more divisions no more sin and death and separation God will not only have restored creation back to the garden but he will lift us up above even that so that we live and dwell in his presence forever that is the temple that Jesus Christ has built and is building for his people. So Christian, that is the sure hope you have in Christ. What discouragement or despair could be greater than that? And if you don't know Christ this morning and you don't have that sure hope, know that he has promised whoever comes to me i will in no wise cast out that gate is never closed if you come to him you will find god ready to dwell with his people jesus is our temple he is our glorious house, and he's building us up as living stones in that house. And all who have come to him will live with him forever. Let's pray. Lord, the last thing that you said your people and your word is he who testifies to these things says surely I'm coming soon Lord all we can say is what John said in response to that amen come Lord Jesus Lord as we approach Christmas in this coming week I pray that you would keep it at the forefront of our minds that you are coming again This time not as a lowly, helpless baby, but as a conquering, victorious king who has come to live with his people. Amen. Come, Lord.